Chapter 12 of Old Time Makers of Medicine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich. September 2009, Alexandria, Virginia. Old Time Makers of Medicine by James Joseph. Chapter 12 Medieval Dentistry. Giovanni of Arcoli, Part 1 of 2. If there is one phase of our present-day medicine and surgery that most of us are likely to be quite sure is a very recent development, it is dentistry. Probably most people would declare at once that they had every reason to think that the science and art of dentistry, as we have it now, developed for the first time in the world's history during the last generation or two. It is extremely interesting to realize then, in the light of this almost universal persuasion, founded to a great extent on the conviction that man is in process of evolution and that as a consequence we must surely be doing things now that men never did before, to find that dentistry, both as an art and science, is old, that it had developed at a number of times in the world's history and that is fortunately for history, its work was done mainly in indestructible materials, the teeth themselves, and metal prosthetic apparatus. We have actual specimens of what was accomplished at a number of periods in the olden times. Surprising as it will seem to those who hear of it for the first time, dentistry reached high perfection even in what we know as ancient history. It is rather easy to trace scientific and craftsmanlike interest in it during the medieval period and in the magnificent development of surgery that came just at the end of the Middle Ages, dentistry shared to such a degree that some of the textbooks of the writers on surgery of this time furnish abundant evidence of anticipations of many of the supposedly most modern developments of dentistry. There are a number of historical traditions with regard to dentistry and the treatment of the teeth in Egypt that can be traced back to good authorities in Egyptology of a generation or more ago, but it is rather hard to confirm the accounts we have by actual specimens. Either none were found, or for some reason those actually discovered are now not readily available for study. Among the Phoenicians, however, though we have good reasons to think that they learned their arts and crafts from the Egyptians, there is convincing evidence of a high development of dentistry. M. Ernest Renan, during an exploring expedition in Phoenicia, found in the old necropolis at Sidon a set of teeth wired together, two of which were artificial. It was a striking example of bridge work, very well done, and may now be seen in the Louvre. It would be more than a little surprising, from what we know of the lack of inventiveness on the part of the Phoenicians, and their tendency to acquire their arts by imitation, if they had reached such a climax of invention by themselves. Since they adapted and adopted most of their arts and crafts from Egypt, with which they were in close commercial relations, it has been argued with some plausibility that the Egyptians may have had many modes of dental prosthesis, but removed all artificial teeth 
and dental appliances from the mouth of corpses before embalming them, in preparation for the next world, because there was some religious objection to such human handiwork being left in place for the hereafter, as they hoped for it. There is a well-authenticated tradition of inanimate intercourse in a commercial way between the old Etruscans who inhabited the Italian hill country and the Phoenicians, so that it is no surprise to find that the oldest of Etruscan tombs contain some fine examples of bridgework. An improvement has come over Phoenician work, however, and bands of gold, instead of wire, are used for holding artificial teeth in place. Guerini, whose History of Dentistry is the standard work on the subject, on a commission from the Italian government, carefully studied these specimens of Etruscan dental work in the museums of Italy, and has made some interesting observations on them. In one specimen, which is especially notable, two incisor teeth are replaced by a single tooth from a calf. This was grooved in such a way as to make it seem like two separate teeth. Guarini suggests a very interesting and quite unexpected source for this. While examining the specimen, he wondered where the old Etruscan dentist had obtained a calf's tooth without a trace of wear on it. He came to the conclusion that he must have cut into the gums of a young calf before the permanent tooth was erupted in order to get this structure absolutely unworn for his purpose. A number of examples of bridge work have been found in the old Etruscan tombs. The dates of their construction are probably not later than 500 B.C., and some of them are perhaps earlier than 700 B.C. The Etruscans affected the old Romans in the matter of dentistry, so that it is easy to understand the passage in the Laws of the Twelve Tables, issued about 450 B.C., while forbidding the burial of gold with corpses, made a special exception for such gold as was fastened to the teeth. Gold was rare at Rome, and care was exercised not to allow any unnecessary decrease of the visible supply, almost in the same way as governments now protect their gold reserves. It may seem like comparing little things with great, but the underlying principle is the same. Hence this special law and its quite natural exception. In Pope Julius Museum in Rome, there is a specimen of a gold cap made of two plates of gold, riveted together, and also riveted to bands of metal, which were fastened around the neighboring teeth, in order to hold the cap in place. This is from later Republican times at Rome. At the end of the Republic and the beginning of the Empire, there appear to have been many forms of dental appliances. Marshall says that the reason why one lady's teeth, whose name he does not conceal, are white and another's, name also given, were dark, was that the first one brought hers and the second still had her own. In another satiric poem, he describes an elderly woman as so much frightened that when she ran away, her teeth fell out, while her friends lost their false hair. Filings of many kinds were used, dentrifices of nearly every kind were invented, and dentistry evidently reached a high state of development, though we have nowhere a special name for a dentist, and the work seems to have been done by physicians, 
who took this as a specialty. While in the Middle Ages there was, owing to conditions, a loss of much of this knowledge of antiquity with regard to dentistry, or an obscuration of it, it never disappeared completely, and whenever men have written seriously about medicine, above all about surgery, in relation to the face and the mouth, the teeth have come in for their share of scientific and practical consideration. Aetius, the first important Christian writer on medicine and surgery, discusses, as we have seen in the sketch of him, the nutrition of the teeth, their nerves, quote, which came from the third pair and entered the teeth by a small hole existing at the end of the root, end quote, and other interesting details of anatomy and physiology. He knows much about the hygiene of the teeth, discusses extraction, and the cure of the fistula and other details. Paul of Aegina, in the next century, has much more, and while they both quote mainly from older authors, there seems no doubt that they themselves have made not a few observations and had practical experience. It was from these men that the Arabian physicians and surgeons obtained their traditions of medicine, and so it is not surprising to find that they discussed dental diseases and their treatment rationally and in considerable detail. Abulcasis particularly has much that is of significance and interest. We have pictures of two score of dental instruments that were used by them. The Arabs not only treated and filled carious teeth, and even replaced those that were lost, but they also corrected deformities of the mouth and of the dental arches. Orthodontia is sometimes said to be of much later origin, and to begin many centuries after Abulcasis' time. Yet no one who knows of his work can speak of Orthodontia as an invention after him. In this, however, as in most of the departments of medicine and surgery, the Arabs were merely imitators, though probably they expanded somewhat the practical knowledge that had come to them. When the great revival in surgery came in the 12th and 13th centuries, it is not surprising that there should also have been an important renewal of interest in dentistry. A detailed review of this would take us too far afield, but at least something may be said of two or three of the great representative surgical writers who touched on this specialty. About the middle of the 14th century, that prince of surgeons and model of surgical writers, Guy de Choliac, wrote his great textbook of surgery, Le Grand Chirurgie. An extremely interesting feature of this work is to be found in the chapters that treat of diseases of the teeth. These are not very comprehensive, and are evidently not so much the result of his experience as the fruit of his reading, yet they contain many practical valuable ideas that are supposed to be ever so much later than the middle of the 14th century. His anatomy and physiology, at least, are not without many errors. His rules for the preservation of the teeth show that the ordinary causes of dental decay were well recognized even as early as this. Emphasis was laid on not taking foods too hot or too cold, and above all, not to follow either hot or cold food by something very different from it in temperature. 
the breaking of hard things with the teeth was recognized as one of the most frequent causes of such deterioration of the enamel as gives opportunity for the development of decay. The eating of sweets, and especially the sticky sweets, preserves and the like, was recognized as an important source of caries. The teeth were supposed to be cleaned frequently, and not to be cleaned too roughly, for this would do more harm than good. We find these rules repeated by succeeding writers on general surgery, who touch upon dentistry, or at least the care of the teeth, and they were not original with Guy de Choliac, but part of the tradition of surgery. As noted by Guerini in his History of Dentistry, the translation of which was published under the auspices of the National Dental Association of the United States of America, Choliac recognized the dentists as specialists. Besides, it should be added, as is evident from his enumeration of the surgical instruments, which he declares necessary for them, they were not, as we might easily think in the modern time, mere tooth-pullers, but at least the best among them treated teeth as far as their limited knowledge and means at command enabled them to do so, and these means were much more elaborate than we have been led to think, and much more detailed than we have reason to know that they were at certain subsequent periods. In fact, Though Guy de Choliac frankly confesses that he touches on the subject of dentistry only in order to complete his presentation of the subject of surgery, and not because he has anything of his own to say with regard to the subject, there is much that is of present-day interest in his brief paragraphs. He observes that operations on the teeth are special and belong to the dentatores, or dentists, to whom doctors have given them over. He considers, however, that the operations in the mouth should be performed under the direction of a physician. It is in order to give physicians the general principles with which they may be able to judge the advisability or necessity for dental operations that his short chapters are written. If their advice is to be of value, Physicians should know the various methods of treatment suitable for dental diseases, including mouthwashes, gargles, masticatories, anointments, rubbings, fumigations, cauterizations, filings, fillings, and the various manual operations. He says that the dentator must be provided with the appropriate instruments, among which he names scrapers, rasps, straight and curved spatumina, elevators, simple and with two branches, toothed tenacula, and many different forms of probes and cannulas. He should also have small scalpels, tooth trephines, and files. Choliac is particularly emphatic in his insistence on not permitting alimentary materials to remain in cavities, and suggests that if cavities between the teeth tend to retain food material, they should even be filled in such a way as to prevent these accumulations. His directions for cleansing the teeth were rather detailed. His favorite treatment for wounds was wine, and he knew that he succeeded by means of it in securing union by first intention. It is not surprising, then, 
to find that he recommends rinsing the mouth with wine as a precaution against dental decay. A vinous decoction of wild mint and of pepper he considered particularly beneficial, though he thought that dentrifices, either powder or liquid, should also be used. He seems to recommend the powder dentrifices as more efficacious. His favorite prescription for a tooth powder, while more elaborate, resembles to such an extent at least some, if not indeed most of those that are used at the present time, that it seems worth while giving his directions for it. He took equal parts of cuttlebone, small white seashells, pumice stone, burnt stag's horn, nitre, alum, rock salt, burnt roots of iris, aristolochia, and reeds. All of these substances should be carefully reduced to powder and then mixed. His favorite liquid dentrifice contained the following ingredients, half a pound each of sal ammoniac and rock salt, and a quarter of a pound of saccharin alum. All these were to be reduced to powder and placed in a glass alembic and dissolved. The teeth should be rubbed with it, using a little scarlet cloth for the purpose. Just why this particular color of cleansing cloth was recommended is not quite clear. He recognized, however, that cleansing of the teeth properly often became impossible by any scrubbing method, no matter what the dentrifice used, because of the presence of what we call tartar and what he called hardened limosity, or liminess, limosité endorsi. When that condition is present, he suggests the use of rasps and spatumina and other instrumental means of removing the tartar. Evidently, he did not believe in the removal of teeth unless this was absolutely necessary and no other method of treatment would avail to save the patient from continuous distress. He summarizes the authorities with regard to the extraction of teeth and the removal of dental fragments and roots. He evidently knew of the many methods suggested before his time of removing teeth without recourse to instrumental extraction. There were a number of applications to the gums that were claimed by older authors to remove the teeth without the need of metal instruments. We might expect that Choliac would detect the fallacy with regard to these and expose it. He says that while much is claimed for these methods, he has never seen them work in practice, and he distrusts them entirely. The most interesting phase of what Guy de Choliac has to say with regard to dentistry is of course to be found in his paragraphs on the artificial replacement of lost teeth and the subject of dental prosthesis generally. When teeth become loose, he advises that they be fastened to the healthy ones with a gold chain. Guarini suggests that he evidently means a gold wire. If the teeth fall out, they may be replaced by the teeth of another person or with artificial teeth made from oxbone, which may be fixed in place by a fine metal ligature. He says that such teeth may be serviceable for a long while. This is a rather curt way of treating so large a subject as dental prosthesis, but it contains a lot of suggestive material. He was quoting mainly the Arabian authors, and especially Abulcasis and Ali Abbas and Razis, and these, of course, as we have said, 
mentioned many methods of artificially replacing teeth, as also of transplantation and of treatment of the deformities of the dental arches. On the whole, however, it must be confessed that we have here in the middle of the 14th century a rather surprising anticipation of the knowledge of a special department of medicine which is usually considered to be distinctly modern, and indeed as having only attracted attention seriously in comparatively recent times. After Guy de Choliac, the next important contributor to dentistry is Giovanni of Arcoli, often better known by his Latin name, Johann Arculanus, who was a professor of medicine and surgery at Bologna, and afterwards at Padua, just before and after the middle of the 15th century, and who died in 1484. He is famous principally for being the first we know who mentions the filling of teeth with gold. It might possibly be suggested that coming at this time, Arculanus should rather be reckoned as a maker of medicine in the Renaissance than as belonging to the Middle Ages and its influences. His education, however, was entirely completed before the earliest date at which the Renaissance movement is usually said to begin, that is, with the fall of Constantinople in 1452, and he was dead before the other date, that of the discovery of America in 1492, which the Germans have in recent years come to set down as the end of the Middle Ages. Besides, what he has to say about dentistry occurs in typical medieval form. It is found in a commentary on Razi's, written just about the middle of the 15th century. In the later true Renaissance, such a commentary would have been on a Greek author. In his commentary, Arculanus touches on most of the features of medicine and surgery from the standpoint of his own experience as well as from what he knows of the writings of his predecessors and contemporaries. With the rest, he has a series of chapters on diseases of the teeth. Guarini, in his History of Dentistry, says that, quote, This subject, dentistry, is treated rather fully, and with great accuracy. End quote. Even some short references to it will, I think, demonstrate this rather readily. Arculanus is particularly full in his directions for the preservation of the teeth. We are rather prone to think that prophylaxis is comparatively a modern idea, and that most of the principles of conservation of human tissues and the prevention of deterioration and disease are distinctly modern. It needs only a little consideration of Arculanus' instruction in the matter of the teeth, however, to undo any such false impression. For obvious reasons, I prefer to quote Guarini's summation of this medieval student of dentistry's rules for dental hygiene. Quote, for the preservation of teeth, considered by him, quite rightly, a matter of great importance, Giovanni of Arcoli repeats the various counsels given on the subject by preceding writers, but he gives them as ten distinct canons or rules, creating in this way a kind of decalogue of dental hygiene. These rules are, 1. It is necessary to guard against the corruption of food and drink within the stomach, therefore, 
easily corruptible food, milk, salt fish, etc., must not be partaken of, and after meals all excessive movement, running exercises, bathing, coitus, and other causes that impair the digestion must also be avoided. 2. Everything must be avoided that may provoke vomiting. 3. Sweet and viscous food, such as dried figs, preserves made with honey, etc., must not be partaken of. 4. Hard things must not be broken with the teeth. 5. All food, drink, and other substances that set the teeth on edge must be avoided. 6. Food that is too hot or too cold must be avoided, and especially the rapid succession of hot and cold, and vice versa. 7. Leeks must not be eaten, as such a food, by its own nature, is injurious to the teeth. 8. The teeth must be cleaned at once, after every meal, from the particles of food left in them, and for this purpose thin pieces of wood should be used, somewhat broad at the ends, but not sharp pointed or edged, and preference should be given to small cypress twigs, the wood of aloes, or pine, rosemary, or juniper and similar sorts of wood which are rather bitter and styptic. Care must, however, be taken not to search too long in the dental interstices, and not to injure the gums or shake the teeth. 9. After this, it is necessary to rinse the mouth by using, by preference, a vinous decoction of sage, or one of cinnamon, mastich, gallia, moschata, cubeb, juniper seeds, root of cypress, and rosemary leaves. 10. The teeth must be rubbed with suitable dentrifices before going to bed, or else in the morning before breakfast. Although Avicenna recommended various oils for this purpose, Giovanni of Arcoli appears very hostile to oleaginous frictions, because he considers them very injurious to the stomach. He observes, besides, that while moderate frictions of brief duration are helpful to the teeth, strengthen the gums, prevent the formation of tartar, and sweeten the breath. Too rough or too prolonged rubbing is, on the contrary, harmful to the teeth and makes them liable to many diseases. End, quote. End of part one of two.